1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com historyextra History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It's hard to think of a more significant historical event than the Second World War. A global conflict that engulfed the world, changing the shape of societies and the lives of hundreds of millions. Today, we're bringing you the first episode of our new series looking at the big questions of the Second World War. Over five episodes, historian and broadcaster Lawrence Rees will join Rachel Dinning to take you through the conflict. From the short and long-term causes and the key battles, milestones and players involved to the origins of the Holocaust. In this first episode, Lawrence and Rachel look at the build-up to the war focusing on the legacy of the First World War in Germany, as well as Adolf Hitler's rise to power and motivations.
2: So, Lawrence, starting off with a rather big question here, but could you take us through some of the causes of the Second World War? Yeah,
3: absolutely. And bear in mind, of course, that some people have spent their whole lives on that one question and written long books on it. So this is very much going to be a a pricey. But I think a really good place to start is to think about the role of the First World War. Because I think the First World War is absolutely crucial in understanding why the cataclysm of 1939-45 is going to happen. And the reason for that is because primarily the Germans lost. And they looked back and tried to think of reasons why they lost, why this national humiliation happened. Plus, this was at a time when across Europe, absolute turmoil is happening. Look at Russia, the Russian Revolution of 1917. Many people in Germany fear that something similar, communism is going to come to Germany. And in the wake of the uh, loss of the First World War, you do have revolutions in in socialist revolutions in both Munich and in Berlin and in other places. So there's a real sense of, of absolute turmoil and revolution and uncertainty. This is coupled with the Kaiser abdicating. It's coupled with uh, big problems with food supplies. There's, it's an absolutely tumultuous, frightening time. And everyone who is pretty much everyone who is going to become a Nazi, who is going to then live through the Second World War and experience it, has experienced this be, at, at, behind them. And I think that the effect of this on their mentality never leaves, never goes. And it's always there. Certainly the case with Hitler, the experience of the First World War and the loss of it stays.
2: It's really interesting. Um, And we hear a lot about this myth, the stab in the back myth. What can you tell us about that?
3: This is a really important part of it. Um, What that is, is that, I don't know, it seems to me a very human thing, which is when things go really wrong for you, you, you don't want to blame yourself. What you do is you. Most people, I'm sure there are some noble people who do, but I think many people, when things go wrong, they look into their lives and they go, "That wasn't really my fault, you know." If it was, if this this had happened, you see it mostly, most most obviously with children. You know, what, I I didn't do that; they made me do it, or that whatever. And that goes on in the First World War, which is once things start to go wrong for uh, the Germans, there's a search for sta- scapegoats, and they search around and they find, I think, a group of people who traditionally throughout history have been scapegoats, which is the Jews. In 1916, for example, there's a census held uh, in the German army, which is looking at proportionately, are the Jews doing their bit? And it turns out they are. But that census is, is then never, never published. And it seems to me pretty suspicious, isn't it? The reason it, one suspects it's not published is because it doesn't reveal the result they wanted. At the end of the war, this is encapsulated in the in the concept of the stab in the back, meaning that there were Jews plotting behind the lines to undermine the nobility of the, the frontline soldiers. And it's endorsed by as, as big a figure as Field Marshal von Hindenburg, who is going to go on to be a president of the Weimar Republic later on and be an instrumental in Hitler coming to power. Uh, he actually voices support for this in the immediate post-World War I years, of saying, yes, the German army was stabbed in the back. And of course, that's great for him, because it means I wasn't the general who made lots of mistakes or didn't follow things through correctly. But there's these shadowy figures, politicians, or whatever, who are actually responsible. And allied to that, of course, as I say, is the notion of communism and the sense in in these some nationalist quarters that communism is a product of uh, Judaism. It, it wasn't as it happens. Again, you know, they would say Marx is a Jew, but actually Marx did have Jewish heritage, but he didn't he wasn't a practicing Jew. And so it, it's nonsense. We have to keep saying this. It's nonsense. But nonetheless, because, for example, in 1919 revolution in Munich in the immediate post-war years, many of the leaders of, of that are Jewish. So there begins to be a sense that you can combine the two. So when Hitler later on says um, Bolshevism is the great danger, this actually for many of his supporters can be a a trigger code. So they think, ah, well, he really means, he really means Jews.
2: And of course, as you say, that wasn't a cause of the world war, but that was one of the reasons that they had as as a possible cause. It it wasn't
3: a cause of the the second world war. It was, it was an excuse for why they lost the, the first world war. And it stays with, Hitler, you find um, throughout the Second World War, many times in the Second World War, Hitler is, is referring back to the fact that he's not going to let happen again what he claims, and it's a fantasy, but what he claims the Jews did in the First World War.
2: Now, I wanted to ask about the Treaty of Versailles, the peace treaty signed in 1919 that formally ended World War One. So, the terms of it have often been considered quite severe on Germany. Um, how important do you think the Treaty of Versailles is as being one of the reasons for the Second World War?
3: It is very important, and I think many people um, accept that it's it's very important and know it. Everyone says there's a, there's a kind of a, a trope, isn't there, which is oh, the Versailles caused the thing. It's not as, unfortunately, like many things in history, it's not as straightforward as that. Many people, when they talk about Versailles, say, oh, yes, it's because Germany lost a lot of land. Well, they did. But on the other hand, they lost much more at the end of the Second World War. And that wasn't a reason that we've gone on to have another war. And equally, at the end of the First World War, other countries, Hungary in particular, lost much more territory than Germany did. So, I think it's a mistake to think oh it's it's primarily loss of territory that we're talking about here I think it's more from the former Nazis that I met in my work over the last 30 years I think it's more the sense of formulation of the national humiliation that what versailles is doing it's two things it's the humiliation um there's a war guilt clause in Versailles, which means the Germans have to accept it's all, you know, it, it's their fault, they're guilty. And that, I think, sticks with many, many people. I mean, So the war guilt clause is an important thing. And certainly something Hitler picks up on in his speeches later on. And I think that that's absolutely crucial. And then another thing that's often forgotten is the American President Woodrow Wilson, while the, war, the last uh, months of the war, he made a speech talking about his 14 points. And in it it was a very much kind of magnanimous feeling it was a sense of there's going to be self determination after the war for peoples there's going to be um, uh, we're going to aim for uh, national disarmament it was very much an, an incredible idealistic document and a number of Germans when they hear that during the war say well actually it's not you know if we lose but once we once we get to the peace treaty Wilson's going to be there and there's going to be these wonderful 14 points that make it not so bad. Not a bit of it. The self-determination goes because the move for Austria to join Germany is squashed. They can't, even if a majority of of Austrians would have wanted it. Doesn't make any difference. Um, And in terms of disarmament, the focus is only on Germany being reduced down to an army of 100,000. The other nations don't all disarm So there's also in in Versailles the core is this sense of absolute hypocrisy of the, of, of, of the victors, victors' justice, the hypocrisy. And that, I think, again, is the theme you're going to see right the way through this. That doesn't leave uh, uh, right up in the causes of the Second World War and through the war. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven
1: by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
4: Visit betterhelp.com/slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp slash history extra. Do you think that the treaty
2: was a key reason that the Nazis were able to grow in popularity during the
3: 1920s? It was certainly one of the reasons uh, that propelled Hitler through into politics and made him want to become a politician that made him then barnstorming speeches that he gave in the early 1920s, many of them focusing on the incredible injustice of Versailles. And so it was instrumental in helping grow the Nazi party in Bavaria, absolutely. Was it instrumental in him, in them coming to power? Well, the issue is in in 1928, and again, many people don't know this, and it's just, if, if you remember one statistic from this, I would hang on to this one, which is that in 1928, the Nazi party under Hitler... And bear in mind, Hitler had been uh, leader of the party. They denounced the party program in 1920. So that had been going on uh, for, for eight years. Hitler and the Nazis in 19 the German general election in 1928 got 2.6% of the vote. So he'd been banging on about Versailles. He'd been banging on about the evil of the Jews. All of this, all that time. And he gets 2.6% of the vote. At that time, many people thought they're a joke party. They're not going anywhere. What changes? What changes is primarily the depression. Mass unemployment, economic uh, hardship, the whole kind of terrible problems that they have with the Weimar system of government. There's a sense of stagnation, of having elections and not making any difference, that democracy was beginning to be seen not to just work. And so it's, it's that environment and through that environment that Hitler's able to come forward. And crucially... What he's doing from that, from from the late twenties through to becoming chancellor in January 1933, is you suddenly see he's not banging on about the Jews so much anymore. There's been a study of his speeches, detailed study of his speeches during that period, that shows that actually he stops talking about that so much. He doesn't pretend that he likes Jews, but he stops he stops that focus. The focus instead becomes uh, on something uh, called Volksgemeinschaft, which is the national community. Which is kind of all true. Germans are going to come together. The, the problems have been in the past of thirty different parties and all this. We're going to have we're going to have one party. We're going to all come together, and we're all going to be this great kind of utopian German ideal. and And you can see, amazing statistic. I think again in nineteen thirty two, the German the general election, a majority of people in voting either for the communists or for the Nazis. A ma- that's a majority, are voting for parties that knowingly say they're going to destroy democracy. Mm. And so I always think when people say, oh, well, once democracy is in place, it's not going to go, you know, they they knowingly voted. Democracy as they saw it wasn't working. So I think that, you know, you've got to add that in as one of the crucial reasons that um, Hitler is going to come to power. And plus you have the members of the German elite, people like von Papen, who was former chancellor, but also the convincing of President Hindenburg. Without Hindenburg being convinced to give Hitler the job, he couldn't have got the job. Hindenburg becomes convinced that actually there needs to be change. And these people are not fans of democracy either. In
2: 1933 then, Adolf Hitler becomes chancellor. Um, Do you think, does he want war at this early stage? Is that something on his agenda?
3: Again, it's such a fascinating question because when I was at at school in the... uh, Early seventies, we were kind of taught very much. Well, the line I think really came from the very famous historian at the time called A.G.B. Taylor, which is that you can't understand this by thinking there's a straightforward element, which is Hitler is always pushing towards war. And I think all of a lot of the research and most of the research that's gone on since then, the, the finding of the complete run of Goebbels' diaries, for example, or various other things, has has led led many people, me included to believe that, that the focus his focus is on gaining an empire in the East. And by the East, I mean Eastern Europe and the Western part of the Soviet Union. So very topical places today, Ukraine, the Baltic states. And his plan is that that is going to be a German empire. That is in a book he writes in 1924, Mein Kampf. It's in that book, but rather like with the... Jewish idea, which pervades that book. The two big ideas in that book are his pathological, I mean, like, wacko, zany hatred of Jews. I mean, just fantasy level. And his belief that Germany needs extra territory and needs an empire and is going to get one and it's going to get one in that part of the world. So those are the two things. He believes that. I mean, you know, he absolutely believes that. So when he comes to power, there's an incredibly interesting meeting in just a few days, really, after he comes to Paris Chancellor, where he he has a dinner party, essentially, or a party, with the leading German military figures, generals. And there are two or three sources for that, uh, for what's said there. And it appears that at that meeting, he doesn't say the plan is what they call Lebensraum, living room, meaning we're going to get this empire. He doesn't say that's definitely going to happen. He says it's an option. We need to consider this as an option because uh, Germany isn't big enough, it needs more territory. Look at the British Empire, look at the space in America, look at all these other countries that have big space and big opportunities to have resources and, and so on. We don't. It's not fair. He's saying that at that meeting, and that's in days after he comes to power in 1933. He's not saying that to the public. He doesn't stand up and tell the public that. And the reason he doesn't want to tell the public that is because why on earth would anybody want another war? They just lived through the horrors of that. But where he's clever is he's able to cloak it. And he cloaks it with the idea that we must have returned to us the territory we lost at Versailles. And the territory we lost at Versailles, a lot of it, for example, is in what is now constituted as Poland, which is in the East. And that, a lot of, I think, many people would, many people, uh, uh, certainly many military officers would support. And, and, and the final thing to say about that is there's this very, uh, again, not as well known as it should be, a treaty that signed at the beginning of 1918 called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And what that is, is a treaty signed while the war is still, still going on in the West, it's a treaty signed between the Germans and their allies and Lenin and the, the uh, embryo Soviet Union. And what it does is it, it gives up enormous amounts of territory from the Soviet Union, including uh, these areas, many of these areas of the Ukraine and so on. And um, the Germans have effective control through various measures of that area. So what's actually happening is that there's a sense that, well, we managed to do this once before. So when later on people say, well, it's, you know, in, in retrospect, people say it's crazy that they tried to invade. Uh, the Soviet Union, in the memory of all these people, is this fact that we did it once and it seemed to work.
2: I wanted to now ask you about the Munich Conference and Neville Chamberlain's infamous appeasement of Hitler. Um, so, can you tell us a bit about what happened here?
3: Well, now we're into you know everything I've just said is a kind of you could you could categorise as a long term. Long, we're talking about the, some of the long term causes of the war. We're now onto the short term causes of the war. And the thing about the thing about Neville Chamberlain, and and uh, it, it, you know, and he, understandably, he's had a very rough ride from historians, many historians since, but not all. And the reason not all is because if you put yourself, try and put yourself in the position of British politicians at, at that time, with the exception of Churchill, who is clear in his concerns about Hitler, but the big fear is. We're going to have another war. And someone like Chamberlain can't believe that Hitler would want another war. And in fact, Hitler keeps saying, I mean, he he keeps saying in his speeches, I fought in the First World War. I know what war is like. Why would I want another war? At the same time, as we know, his fantasy is this empire in the East. And how on earth is he going to get it without war? They're not going to give it to him. But nonetheless, if you are someone like Chamberlain who believes that other people aren't necessarily going to look him straight in the eyes and absolutely lie, Hitler is saying, I don't want another war. What I want is not to have uh, the evils of Versailles anymore. And I remember we interviewed uh, for a a series I did many years ago, we interviewed a a British diplomat who was talking about earlier in 1938 Germany had taken with Anschluss, had moved in and and occupied and absorbed the whole of Austria into Germany. And uh, he said, well, the reason people didn't object so much about that, he says, do people really want to go to war to see Germans sort of occupying other German speakers? I mean, you know, and there was a sense in some quarters that Versailles had been too harsh. So when he says, I, I just want to right the wrongs of Versailles, I don't want war. And so what? Chamberlain is pushing is the idea of that, and so he agrees. Munich, they agree that the Sudetenland, which are the borderlands of of uh, Czechoslovakia, would be returned to um, Germany. Or we say returned, but there are many uh, German speakers in that area, and so that sort of fitted in. And Hitler goes, "That's my last territorial demand." So there's a, that's the famous that that's the background of the famous bit where he stands up with his bit of paper and says. Chamberlain, when he returns, I have peace in our time, and so on. So you can understand why he's doing that. That all changes absolutely dramatically in March uh, 1939. And the reason it changes in March 1939 is Hitler moves into the rest of the Czech lands while simultaneously getting Slovakia to declare itself a puppet republic of of the Nazis. And at that moment in March 1939 for Chamberlain and for all the other people who thought he doesn't want, he doesn't want all of that out the window because this land was not subject to be taken from Germany in Versailles or anything appropriate, anything like that. He moves into Prague and, well, that shows who he is. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, that causes in the short term the guarantees that Britain gives to Poland and Romania – that and France give that that actually that's it that's the line in the sand we've had enough
2: sure why did Hitler mo- then move on to Poland knowing p- presumably knowing that it was going to stir up trouble with everyone else
3: part of him doesn't believe it part of him believes that um he, he famously says that he's seen uh he said I saw our uh, uh, paraphrasing that he says something like, I I I saw our enemies at Munich, they're weak, they're sort of, I think he may have used the word worms or something, you know, but he, he he feels he's built up. The whole thrust of what's gone on in the 1930s has been a massive rearmament of the German armed forces. I mean, they've got huge issues with the money that they've been spending on rearmament. He's also feels, you know, he's 50, he's not actually that old, um, but nonetheless, he feels i may die any minute and his idea of being this great conqueror this great empire put in um brackets to say you know watch out for kind of once dictators get old there's a sense that oh my god i may die and i may die before i am the truly great person who's done all this so he's in he's in he's beginning to be in a in a in a real hurry and um he thinks that uh it's not going to be a It's not going to be so much of a problem because he thinks that, um, as I say, his enemies, you know, these are weak characters.
2: Mm -hmm, Sure. And then my final question, just to wrap up episode one of this series, is could war have been averted? Where was the tipping point, really?
3: The problem with counterfactual history is essentially it didn't happen. (laughs) And so there's too many, there's lots and lots of other variables. If there had been... Massive rearmament along the same levels, massive rearmament in Britain and and France earlier, and a real sense earlier that the the Allies were not going to tolerate uh, German expansion and so on. Maybe Uh, there was a sort of um, 1938, around the time of Munich, that kind of period, there was a a group of of German uh, generals who were against thinking, we're thinking of this, we don't want this to lead to war and so on maybe more could have been done to support them. To me, um, it's very, very hard to see how any of that could have happened. It's hard to see how that could have happened because as long as Hitler is saying, I don't want war, I just want uh, um, the wrongs as I see it of Versailles to be righted, as long as he's saying that, that's a seductive message to your populations and we're all democracies. And who is going to support um you know how are you going to sell to the people a massive massive rearmament um at a time when many people are actually also more uh, concerned about communism and the 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 role of stalin and what's going on in the soviet union than they are with than they are with the germans and 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 hitler and also a lingering sense in many quarters that maybe he's got a point maybe versailles was too much so you put all that in the mix. and I think it's it's very, very hard to see quite how it could have been averted without us knowing what we know now. Sure.
2: Well, thank you very much for that comprehensive overview of the causes of World War II. Um, we'll be looking at the early years of the war in the next episode, so do make sure to check back in for that.
3: Thanks, Rachel.
0: You are listening to Lawrence Rees in conversation with Rachel Dinning. If you'd like to learn more about the causes of the Second World War, please visit our World War II hub on our website at historyextra.com forward slash big questions to find plenty further reading articles and quizzes on what you've learned in today's episode. Next week, Lawrence and Rachel will be covering the early years of the conflict. So join us then to find out more. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.